0: Hi everyone, welcome to And What Do You Do? This episode I spoke to Michaela, who's an artist, a doctor of art no less. We talked about specific artworks a little and Michaela's background, but I would say more about how she approaches things, uh, what art is, and how people think about the artistic and creative process or artistic and creative works. It'll make sense I think within context. As always, I'll be back at the end with some more links and things, but otherwise, let's get to that interview. Okay, well, I'm excited because I've got a new guest. But tell me, who are you and what do you do?
1: Hello, I'm Michaela French. I'm an artist and filmmaker and animator. And I work generally in spaces that are not conventionally moving image spaces, projection environments, non-flat screen environments, um, dome spaces, uh, museum installations, and a broad range of other uh, places, including circuses and performance and opera. The core practice is is moving image production, and that takes me into many, many different realms.
0: So what got you involved in this in the first place? I mean, art, art is a big subject, of course, and you're doing something that seems slightly different. So what made you decide on these unusual spaces?
1: Well, to be honest, it was never a decision, Ed. It was sort of an unfolding and an and an evolving process. So um I first started animating when I was about twenty one and my boyfriend bought me a Super Eight camera at a um car boot sale. It was in Australia. So actually it was called a trash and treasure market there. Um okay. and this Super Eight camera allowed me to record single frames. So I I, um, started animating with it and it wasn't something I'd really ever thought about prior to that. He just knew that my boyfriend at the time knew how to use this machine and we got the recordings back and it was like Wonderland to me to be able to make these images and make these objects and um, bring it to life. And obviously I'd seen films and animations, but I hadn't really ever had a particular interest in animation until that point. And then there was this, kind of sense that actually all these lights came on in my head and I found this way of thinking and this way of working that made perfect sense to me. And at the time I was um, uh, studying printmaking at art school in Australia and I convinced my my academic team that um, they should allow me to make films as part of my printmaking practice because there was no film department at the time. And it was quite a a battle, but they did in the end agree to allow me to use the idea of the film print as part of my printmaking practice. And so on that basis, I was allowed to graduate with a film. And it happened in the final year of my study that a computer animation course started up. Um, Actually, they were music, primarily kind of computer music artists and Um, had a little, uh, had a sideline of animation um, in their studio. So just a few of the art students were invited into this space, which actually was also my first encounter with dome spaces because part of their kind of sound environment and sound experiments took place in a geodesic dome that had um, a speaker on every kind of structural point of intersection. So I think there was like 63 speakers or something in this space. And they'd make these crazy um, extended experimental sound performances in the in this kind of 63 channel surround sound dome. And then and then the animation students would play films um, that would go for 30 seconds, and then you'd go to the next performance sound performance, which might go for 50 minutes and things so it was quite it was they were pretty mysterious events but i learned to program um computer programming and i learned kind of basic principles of computer animation in that in that environment and i think um because in that place although we were working on screen like flat screens regular um flat screens there was this idea that of spatial performance and spatial environments that was certainly being explored there. So, to be honest, I've never thought about that in relation to then moving into different projection spaces until this moment. But <laughs> uh, I think there's it's it's actually there's a very clear link there. And I think the thinking of these the people who ran this department it was very um, experimental and seemed to attract people who didn't work in kind of conventional ways and. Um, there was a. It was certainly a really quite dynamic and exciting place. A uh, place to be part of. So that was where. That was sort of where my animation career began. I guess it was after that that I decided moving image was the, the path for me to take. And I then went on to study and make other films and um, learn a whole lot of different production skills and so on. That probably took about ten years, but we can just skip over that.
0: Well, I was going to interrupt slightly because, you know, I I do actually know a a little bit about you at least, but I do know that you have recently just uh, become a doctor.
1: Yeah, that's that's right. Been a long time in the making, I have to say. Um, I I have just completed my PhD at the Royal College of Art in London, where I've been studying since 2014. So that's been a seven-year journey. And um, really, the decision to undertake the PhD, it had been something I'd thought about for quite a long time and the kind of intervening gap between that very first animation experience at art school in Australia on the other side of the world to being um, sitting here in the UK having just completed my doctorate. It's a very long and meandering path which we may or may not have time to discuss Um, in full in this interview but really I guess the point for the PhD was that in practice as an artist and a practitioner um, I worked a lot in planetariums I worked doing projection for live performance so contemporary dance and circus and orchestra so where projection would be included on stage or as part of the performance I would um uh for a long time i was getting commissions to make work in in those contexts and i think um one of the things that became really of interest to me in those in the in that work was the relationship between light and body so in the projection environments with moving image where that combined in theatrical spaces quite often the bodies themselves would kind of move through the Um, animated environments that I'd made and the experience of that would be that the two things together actually became a a completely different experience for the audience than if you kept the projection on screens and separate from the the performer. so this idea of light and body and how we perceive light and how light influences the way we experience the world and I guess um, migrating from Australia to England there was for me a very marked difference between the quality and amount of light that's available here um, so that was really the starting point for the PhD was to examine that relationship between light and body which led to developing a um, a methodology for um, ecological investigations in art and design and the reason that I did that was to start to look at these ideas of light the interaction between light and body from scientific psychological perceptual kind of and and I guess um, observational approaches and that all of those different uh, perspectives then kind of feed into a a single or well actually it's ecological so there is no singularity this kind of holistic view of how we can understand ourselves in our environment.
0: Well, I mean, first of all, congratulations. Uh, f- <laughs> I, I didn't say that at the start. Here, here's something that I, I do like to ask, and I've asked other sort of creative people before, but some of this might be through my own ignorance. How do you approach the the blank page, as it were?
1: Do you know what? This has taken me a long time to understand this, but I don't, I don't find things out by thinking about them. I find things out by doing, doing something. So it's very, for me, it's in the action of doing something. And the doing something will always start with an intention. So there is thought obviously involved or an idea or a, a kind of feeling of how something might work. So, for example, one of the projects that I did for the PhD, I spent 10 days in um, a, a little studio called the Old Lookout Studio and it was, it's on the um, harbour edge of the, um, the Broadstairs Harbour in Kent And um, from there, you get to look out across the, it's a tiny little one room um, building that was, I think has been there since the 1600s or something. So it's quite amazing. And it's really sloped, like kind of sliding. So it's quite sloped. So you feel always like you're kind of falling into the sea a little bit. And um, I spent 10 days in there with no, with the intent of finding a way to record and observe um, changes in light and i went with a digital camera and i went with a digital um sensor and a kind of computer program that would record light samples um every every 10 seconds or something and i also had the intention of watching the light and recording the color and the plan was to record the color with paint because that would be what i would imagine or would have thought would be a kind of artistic approach but actually trying to paint the changes and keep an eye on it was impossible, it just didn't work at all. But but I found that actually my eye was very good at observing the changes. It was just a question of how to record those. And the only other option I had with me at the time um, was a, a very small laptop computer that didn't have any creative software on it, but it did have a spreadsheet that allowed you to set an RGB color in a square. So I thought, oh, well, I'll just do it that way. It's probably gonna be a disaster, but I'll carry on. And in actual fact, that process produced the most extraordinarily beautiful studies of light. It's a shame in some ways that I can't show them to you. But um, what they do is to record color every every 10 minutes throughout a day from, dark in, from pre-dawn to, to dark at night. And over the day, you get to see the kind of change in quality of the light so it starts generally quite bright and quite clear and quite intense and then as the the color changes as the sun rises and gets higher and hotter and so on and actually what i ended up with by the end of the day was this kind of color swatch of of i think uh, like 160 different colors that really tracked what had happened in that day so where cloud came over you could see that in the image and where as the sun kind of moved around and reflected to the opposite direction, the colour of the sea changed a lot. And um, it was really a very beautiful experience for me. And this slightly objective or, well, this slightly kind of almost, um, Disconnected and non-artistic practice of recording just what you saw and not caring what the connection was either side actually led to this very beautiful study that extended over a period of time. So I ended up doing that once a month for a year on the 21st day of every month for the year. And what happened was then that I actually began to understand myself watching the planet turning because obviously, starting in, in summer. There was very long days and by the, by the winter, by December, it, like I only had to watch for about eight hours in the day because it was dark by three in the afternoon. The series of images from this, really, had I tried to think of a solution about how to record the turning of the earth from an individual perspective, it would have been, I don't know that I could have figured it out, but I didn't figure it out. I just got on with it and that's how I figured it out by taking an action and seeing what would come of it. So it's exploratory, but there's always a clear intention. And I think the same same process happens with with my animation. I'll have a feeling of what I'm looking for or what I'm trying to communicate or if it's a collaboration with another artist in another art form, so a choreographer or a director or... um, sound designer for example we will talk until we kind of understand that there's a shared territory and then we will go off and work in our own mediums to explore that territory and then come back together again put put our kind of shared ideas together and see what comes out of that so yeah, it's a bit like following following a, a path that's sort of vaguely set, but not mapped out until you're in the process.
0: Do you then have to get, uh, well, maybe not comfortable, but do you have to accept that there are also going to be failures? Then uh, presumably there are some times where that just doesn't come together. And in, in, I mean, your experiments with light seem uh, seem really interesting, and 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 that worked out, uh, even if it didn't follow the Maybe your original path uh, that you thought it would work, but ha- have you had times where y- you followed almost to the end and then you realize it's just not going to? Yeah, absolutely. To and um, I
1: think I think I think the more I practice, and the I guess the older I get in my practice, and the more, com- I I guess that comes with a level of confidence, and I guess there is just a thing which culturally we're not taught anymore but that actually failing is really important and i think in business so in like, there is always a thing in kind of starting up your own business isn't there that they say oh you know you'll fail your business will fail three times but that's how you learn to be good at it so there's a sort of level at which that's acceptable in a in a kind of startup context but in general culturally i think we don't embrace failure as an opportunity but in actual fact a huge amount of my learning comes from things that don't work and fight or encountering elements within a within a process that don't work and then looking at how might you approach that from another direction or are you asking the right question or in order to kind of get the outcome that you need or do you have to take a different approach and then that kind of frees it up again so I guess there's a you could you could almost see it like if there's if there's you know a water water traveling down in a stream and a a leaf's floating on the water you kind of get carried along in your process but then every so often the leak the leaf might get stuck in an eddy or caught on a twig or you know, it doesn't necessarily keep going smoothly all the time. And I think the challenge is to accept that that's part of the process and that that's actually very often where the best learning comes from and maybe the best surprises or it's like the point where you have to push yourself in a different direction. So just going back to the PhD study, I actually did three year long studies of light because I enjoyed the first two so much. I thought I'll do a third one because somehow three studies seemed more convincing than two. So I thought I'll do a third one. But actually the third one was a, a did definitely not go to plan. And for a long time, I considered it to be a failure because none of the outcomes that I got in the study reflected the experience that I was hoping to show. But um, in writing up this the, that study, what became apparent was that whilst the practice hadn't evolved and was still kind of following the same trajectory of the previous two studies, the thinking had moved along, my thinking or my understanding had moved along to a point that actually it was no longer about making an object that summed everything up, it was about the act of being in that process that was the creative act. And the thinking that came out of that was rather than producing art objects, it would be more to take that idea of the experience as an artistic practice in its own right, and use that as the foundation of a, a series of workshops um, that I that I'm developing at the moment for for a broader audience, I guess. And the intention with those is using the using the idea of observing light as a practice for developing ecological understandings of the way we interact with our environment and using that as as an artistic practice but but i guess you know equally it could be seen as an environmental practice or it could be seen as a uh, a kind of practice that invites a certain level of well-being because we there's more and more evidence to suggest that if we engage with the natural world and take time to contemplate it and observe it we generally are feeling increased levels of well-being and certainly reduced levels of stress so the practice kind of shifted to encompass a whole lot of other different perspectives I guess but in the process of doing that practice I did think that it was a failure because it didn't produce artworks as as the previous two had done did that make
0: any sense yeah, I think the question did make sense, yeah, for sure. One of the things I I did want to just ask a little bit about, but not thinking that we're going to find a really simple uh, or conclusive answer because this is something that comes up time and time again. But we do hear a lot, especially when big organizations or, you know, uh, politicians talk about art, there's always that question lingering which is what is the point of art? And I know that art is such a vast subject. There's there's a million different answers for that. But just in terms of how you communicate with uh, the average person on the street, is there a way to hook people into getting interested in, well, I mean, frankly, all types of art or all different types of art? Is there a way to bring them on board uh, if they're, you know, initially perhaps a bit dismissive of it?
1: Yeah, look, I think, um, I mean, it's a huge question, Ed. What is art and- <laughs> What is its purpose? I don't think we're going to resolve that. Here. No,
0: no, fair enough.
1: Um, and I, and to be honest, I don't think there is one answer because the question of what is art, it's so many things. And I think, I can't remember, It's as you were asking the question, there's a Robert Hughes quote, which is really beautiful and I can't remember it exactly at all, but it's something about... Um, that the purpose of art is to challenge and question and and provoke us to see our world world more broadly and experience our world more fully and make choices about the way we are in the world that are not simply um, following a path of convention because that's the way we've always done things. So, I think if you if you were going to for me if you were going to bring it down to its absolute essence. It is about expanding perspectives and um, broadening horizons and inviting new ways of looking and seeing and understanding our relationship to the world. That that at its core for me is what it's for. So if I see a piece of work by another artist, generally I'll respond to it rather than it being an intellectual thing it will be a, it, because it moves me in some way or I feel um, connected to it in some way or it speaks to me in some way. So I guess the, the for me, the exper- it's an experiential thing as well. But I think for a quite a long time, the arts, contemporary art has been much more kind of conceptual or intellectualised, um, Has has had a conceptual or intellectualised emphasis but we're starting to see a swing back more to it too, uh, as experience in, in recent years.
0: Does that make it extra I, part of that? Oh, beg, beg your pardon?
1: I was just going to say, I think um, what it does is to, to add a depth and a breadth to the way societies operate.
0: When you're talking then about a sort of an emotional connection to something uh, rather than an intellectual does that make it extra hard if you produce a piece of art that say you're putting on display and people come and look at it and they just, if it doesn't make any connection for them and they just dismiss it, is that extra hard because you've approached it uh, emotionally yourself?
1: No, do you know, I I actually take an approach to this, which I think is, I don't know if this is normal, but I've had conversations with people about this throughout my entire career. And I tend to find that I, that I have a slightly different position maybe than a lot of people. I don't make work to make other people happy. This, there's a real trend in the way we speak about art as though the audience are the kind of the purpose or, you know, that it doesn't succeed if it doesn't get a big audience. But actually, my feeling is if I make the work with, a, with an honesty and an integrity and a clarity of this vision that I have for myself, that it will communicate that to the people who would, who would, who would, th- there will be an audience for that. I mean, this is crazy to say, because actually I do make a lot of work that has like a, a, a paying theatrical audience come to see it. And of course, I'm thinking about the experience of how do you lead an audience through, you know, a performance or through a, a filmic experience in a planetarium dome, for example. Um, so there's choices being made about that but ultimately the thing that makes me make the decision about what will go up on the wall or on or, or be projected is whether it's tuned right for me so it's like some tuning device and when it gets there it's like it's like um you know tuning an instrument in a way when it's at the right pitch it sings right so it's about it's about kind of finding that in the work So for me, if I feel like I've found that in the work and then I put it out there, um, I think Bob Dylan says, you can't please all of the people all of the time. You can only please some of the people some of the time. So if you can please some of the people some of the time, that makes me pretty happy. Um, So there was an example. I was, as an example, I was, um, I remember a conversation with a a filmmaker who was making short films and was and did very well um, kind of in the public arena and got some major awards for the film and Emmy and um, maybe even an Oscar actually. I think he won an Oscar for a short film. Um, and I remember a conversation with him as to why didn't I make films that would reach a broader audience because my films were doing well but they were very kind of for a niche audience. And that came at the time where I'd made a film. It was about um, it was about loss, I guess, and recovery. And it was a very personal story, but it was kind of told in quite an abstract way. Um, and the film screened and a person who I'd never met contacted me via email and had happened to see the film shortly after his wife had died. And he'd been going through a grieving process And the film had become a turning point for him because there was this sense that he would get through it. And I thought about the question of my colleague and what scale audience would I want to be reaching? But actually I maintained an email conversation with this man for nine months while he went through that process of recovery. And, um, that film had that effect on a number of people over a period of ten or twelve years, and wow. to me, it felt it felt like it had done an important job, and um, that actually it had it had genuinely kind of helped people go through a process. And in telling that story and in making the film, it was sort of me going through my own process of. Reviewing or reflecting on a process that I'd been through to understand it better, I guess, um but in that there was this this kind of embedded um experience that actually was able to be communicated so in some ways I care that really made me feel like I don't care so much for the massive audience, and I'd rather have that thing of actually being able to generate a change in someone's life or in someone's understanding of how they can be in the world or yeah so I guess that's much more of a motivation for me than um, pleasing all of the people but that's also probably why I'm not famous <laughs> <laughs> I don't but I I, I think you know the, as an artist and and the, the question of what is art just going back to that I mean, so much of how we see art in the mainstream is about commercial potential and, you know, selling a piece for millions of pounds. But actually I think most artists are people who are just getting on with their lives and have a a kind of compulsion to make things um, as a way of reflecting on our experience and, and, and I guess trying in some way to communicate that.
0: Well I'm afraid we're almost out of time so I wanted to throw you a bit of a, a curveball um I'm afraid to say that uh you're not allowed to do art anymore um uh, that's oh the, that's the bad news you're not allowed to do art anymore but I do have three other jobs lined up for you oh. uh, if you want if you want one of them okay. uh what I would like to know is which of these jobs you would choose and why what is it about you that makes you think well I could maybe do that even if it is just perhaps least bad option. Uh, Your choices are, you can be an optometrist. That's choice number one. You can be a mortgage advisor. That's choice number two. Or you can be a cyclist. You can be a pro cyclist. So three quite different jobs, but what would appeal to you most and why?
1: Ed, this is a great question. And I actually found myself quite excited by the possibility of having a new career <laughs> I should, <laughs> I should say I actually do also work as a lecturer in universities and um uh, and kind of run research groups and other things but oh, you're
0: not allowed to do that anymore either that's going to
1: I' moving forward with my life so there, there's a clear winner here I, I'd be an optometrist
0: okay all right that's that surprised me a little bit what what is it about optometry you think would be
1: okay, so um part of the thing. Is, um in relation to light and body is um one oh, of the key I... things that i did in my phd was the um the idea of um visual perception and one of
0: the oh, i shouldn't i shouldn't have given you that option should i i should have <laughs> thought harder about my choices and not not giving you any wiggle room okay all right we'll, we'll go with it we'll go with it so, okay. um
1: yeah so I take an ecological approach to visual perception based on James J. Gibson's um, book of, the, of 1979 because he is actually one of my heroes and, and I do actually work with an optometrist in Australia who is exploring um, optometry from a broader experiential perspective and doing some really extraordinary work. So if I had to, I'd be very happy to go and work with him. Sorry, it made it really easy for me.
0: (laughs) I I really, I should have thought about that a bit more myself. Well, you you exploited the wiggle room that I I gave you, so I think that's absolutely uh, fair. But I'm afraid that's all the time we've got. So thank you very much uh, for talking to me, uh, Michaela. That was really interesting stuff. I hope you enjoy the rest of your day.
1: It's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. I've really enjoyed speaking to you. Bye.
0: Okay, I thought that was really interesting. I genuinely enjoyed editing this episode, uh, listening again to some of those things that Michaela was saying. Her background and her approach are so different from my own. And there was really, um, well, at least for me, there was really some uh, thought-provoking stuff there. My thanks once again to Michaela for speaking to me. As always, I'm going to put links and perhaps some other bits and pieces on andwhatdoyoudo.co.uk, which is uh, the home for the podcast. Michaela very kindly sent me an example of the light study uh, she mentioned in the podcast. So that'll be a, an extra little piece of, uh, well, artwork to go check out. If you want to get in touch, please do. It's and what do you do podcast at gmail.com. Uh, but otherwise, I'll leave you with that until the next episode. Bye for now. Speak soon. <laughs>